Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Um, just so grateful for the ministry of Harvest. And, you know, the only downside to this retreat is that it has to end. And, uh, yeah, I know, I know. Um, but, you know, for us personally, it's been so rejuvenating. You know, we are coming out of a very tiring and busy season in ministry. And to get away from New York for a weekend to be with all of you has been so strengthening for our souls. And so uh, we're just so grateful for our spiritual family. It's like our second home here at Harvest. So just wanted to say thank you for uh, embracing us as we made our trip back here to Chicago. And I will be praying for the ministry of Harvest and praying that the next 30 years will be just as fruitful as the last 30. And there are just so many things to be excited for, new uh, elders that were installed, new building, uh, a lot of new faces, uh, the highest number of people in attendance at a retreat in Harvest's history. Uh, the best is yet to come. And I'm so excited to be part of this story from afar, too. But I wanted to talk about uh, being one in mission. And uh, we've been talking about different aspects of oneness and community. And there's a thread that I touched on yesterday about uh, the best, the healthiest community uh, isn't one that's so inwardly focused, but is focused on the communities outside the walls of the church. And a community is never complete until a community is on mission, is joining in the global purposes of what God is doing all around us. And in one of the, I think, one of the most groundbreaking movies from the last uh, 20 or 30 years was um, the movie The Matrix. <laughs> and I, I think a huge reason for its success was its creativity, all the visual effects that were in the movie. But I think another reason why it was so popular is because it awakened people to the possibility of another reality that could define them and infuse their lives with purpose. And there's a line where Morpheus says to his pupil, the protagonist Neo, and he says this, you are here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life. There is something wrong with the world, but you don't know what it is. But it's there like a splinter in your mind. And in a world that's often marked by drudgery and aimlessness, Neo, the protagonist in the movie, is deeply restless and he's searching for purpose. He's wanting to bank his life on something tangible, uh, something that has uh, that resonates with something beyond himself. And these words, they, they pierce through the haze that has marked most of his life. And when we think about our own lives, our own lives will never be full unless we're living for a higher purpose and a higher mission. And our community will never live into its full potential until we're collectively living for a higher purpose and mission as well. And so God doesn't want us to be one for its own sake our oneness is meant to serve as a witness to the world. And I wanted to talk about three things. What is our mission? What's keeping us from being on mission? And how do we ultimately get on mission? What's the source of power for our mission? And so first, what is our mission? Uh, sometimes 
I, I think about what I would tell my kids if I only had a few hours uh, left with them. What are the words that I would impart to them? And it, maybe it feels a bit premature to think like that, but then I think about my own dad, who at age 50 was diagnosed with cancer, and it would eventually take his life a few years later. And so uh, you just never know when those things could hit. And as I've thought about those questions, what would I tell my kids? I wouldn't tell them with those parting words, you know, make sure you eat your vegetables or make sure you're brushing your teeth every night you go to sleep. What I would tell them is invest your life in a purpose that is greater than yourselves, uh, namely the cause of Christ in the world. That's the greatest purpose you can pour your life out for. And I would hope that all along that I would have been modeling that kind of life for them too, because of course these lessons are better caught than they are taught. Uh, they're better observed uh, than they are directed. And I hope that I would have been modeling that kind of life for them. And when we think about what Jesus would say to us, if he only had a few hours left with us, what would his parting words be to all of us, uh, the children of God? What would he say to us? And we don't have to wonder that. We don't have to guess. We can look at, in Scripture, some of the final conversations that he has with his disciples. Because by extension, those conversations also apply to us, too. He's also speaking to us in those words, too. And in all of those final interactions, when you think about them, uh, what, is, what does he say? What does he leave his disciples with? One thing he says at the end of John is, just as the Father has sent me into the world, so I now send you into the world on mission as well. Uh, he tells the Apostle Peter, he asks him, do you love me? Then go out and feed my sheep. Take care of the people who I have entrusted to your care. Uh, he tells his leaders, go out into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. He tells the early church in the book of Acts to go to Judea, Samaria, to all the ends of the earth and bear witness to my name. And he promises to be with them in this adventure of faith that he's calling all of them on. And the common thread in what Jesus is wanting us to leave with us before he ascends into heaven is this message, that he wants us to invest our lives in people, to invest our lives in helping to alleviate all the suffering that we see all around us, especially the potential for eternal suffering. Or said another way, he wants us to help make a difference in people's lives, especially their eternal lives. And this, in fact, is the key to our own flourishing as well. Uh, a few weeks back, I was uh, speaking at another church uh, in, in New York. And after the service, someone came up to me. And it took me a second to remember who it was. But he was someone that I knew from over 20 years ago at the church that I grew up in uh, here in the Chicago suburbs as well. And... I don't know how I remember, but I remembered his name in that split second, Richard. And I said, oh my gosh, Richard, um, did you know that your, and all the memories were flooding back, did you know that, Richard, your dad was actually so instrumental in my own father uh, coming to faith later on in his life? 
And those small acts of faithfulness that he demonstrated to my own dad, my dad was always super skeptical of the church. He was very cynical. He thought the church was full of hypocrites. But your dad was someone who reversed that narrative for him. And my dad started to open up to the faith because of his kindness, his consistency, and his integrity. Richard, that was because of your dad. Can you go back and tell your dad that those small acts of faithfulness were, I think, part of the reason why my dad is in heaven now? And he was not prepared for that conversation in that moment. He was just coming up to say hi. But all those memories just flooded back. I had to tell him because it was over 20 years when I never had a chance to tell him. And, of course, I can't talk to his father who was back in Korea. There's a language barrier, too. But I was so glad that I had a chance to tell him. And many, many years from now, you, you never know uh, who might come up to you to tell you something similar. Uh, you loved my mom, my dad so much, it completely changed the trajectory of their lives. And here I am now with the relationship with God because of your small acts of faithfulness that helped our family to create this legacy of faith that I am still living into right now. You never know the kinds of people who might come up to you in heaven someday thanking you uh, for welcoming me to our community here at Harvest. That for you, maybe it was a simple hello, but for me, I was walking through a deep and dark season of loneliness and depression, but your simple act of hospitality is something that changed the trajectory of my own faith as well. In a season when I so desperately needed a tangible expression of the love of God uh, in my life, you just never know what will happen. The small acts that you invest your life into, how that will ripple out into all of eternity. But what is keeping us from being on this mission with God? What is keeping us from wanting to invest our lives in people in this way? And the author, uh, Andy Crouch, wrote a book called Strong and Weak. And he talks about the key to flourishing, uh, the key to being on mission with God. And he, he charts this out. And on the y-axis, you have authority. What he means by that is, what are we doing with the God-given authority, agency, and responsibility, opportunities in our lives? That's the y-axis. And on the x-axis, Vulnerability. How much are we being exposed to other people's vulnerabilities and weaknesses? Uh, how much are we exposing ourselves to risk in the world, to give up some of our authority for the sake of other people? And I'm going to start off in that bottom right quadrant. When you have uh, people with very minimal agency or authority, but Exposed to all kind of risk and vulnerability, what you have is poverty. Here's a picture of someone living on the streets uh, without a lot of power to pull themselves up out of poverty, but exposed to all kinds of risk and vulnerability on the streets, exposed to all the brokenness that's apparent uh, in this neighborhood as well. And at the height of the pandemic in New York, I know I talked about New York being the epicenter of the pandemic uh, a couple years ago. And... Uh, a lot of the people who had resources, who had authority, power, agency, uh, a lot of people left the city. But the people who were left were all the poor. They simply did not have the resources to get up and leave to their second home or to move in with family that lived in another state. They were stuck. And that right there is a prime example of what it's like to have minimal authority and power 
but be exposed to all the risk and vulnerability uh, in our world. They simply didn't have the luxury of simply uh, moving away. The quadrant on the, on the bottom left, withdrawing. What happens when we have uh, minimal agency, when we don't take responsibility, and we also are protecting ourselves from risk and vulnerability? Uh, Crouch uses the example of a cruise ship. And cruises, of course, are great to go on for a few days or a week, a couple weeks, but what he's talking about is when we make our entire lives uh, our philosophy of life is akin to being on a cruise ship. We're trying to pad ourselves, lining our lives with comfort after comfort, protecting ourselves against any kind of vulnerability uh, in the world. And when our entire lifestyles are based on wanting to withdraw from the world, we're actually distancing ourselves even further from the source of true flourishing. The idols that are are prevalent in this quadrant are the idols of comfort and safety. And when we withdraw, we insulate ourselves from all the suffering in the world, and we start believing the illusion that somehow we can control safety and comfort uh, in our lives. Uh, So our our kids are growing up right now in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, and it's kind of a grittier uh, neighborhood. There's housing projects uh, just down the street from us, and uh, you know, we live in a pretty new building. We won a housing lottery, um, a building that was just built a few years back. We live in a, I don't want to get the impression that we're living in poverty or anything, but it's a gritty neighborhood. And sometimes I wonder, uh, you know, am I, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs in Wheaton, uh, the, the Disneyland of America. And I wonder sometimes, like, if my kids were living there, they could ride their bikes freely around without uh, worrying that they're going to get hit by a car. Uh, They can walk around the neighborhood without hearing uh, F-bombs being thrown about everywhere, people walking around um, high on drugs. Uh, Sometimes I crave that life for them. And it's interesting, though, that uh, there there have only been two times in our lives where we've taken our kids to the emergency room. And we've never taken them to the ER in New York, but the first time we took our kids to the ER was in Orlando, the the happiest place on earth. And Justin's fell down, our second son, and his sunglasses broke, and he had a massive gash right above his eye. We rushed him to the ER. He had to get stitches. And the second time we went to the ER uh, was on a church retreat where our youngest, Jesse, ran into a corner on a table right below his eye. He still has a little, little scar there just to show his street cred. Uh, we don't tell people that happened on a church retreat, uh, but uh, it was bleeding a ton. We rushed him to, uh, well, there was a doctor on site who was treating him. He eventually had to get the gash glued shut. And as I thought about these experiences, the irony of it, that all along I'm worrying about the safety and the protection of our children, but perhaps in the safest places on earth, Orlando and a church conference center, uh, those were the only occasions that we ever had to take our kids to the ER. What it reminded me of is that safety is completely an illusion. And what it raised for me was the question, am I trying to control my family's safety and comfort? Or am I trusting them over to the only one who has control over these things in the first place, namely God himself? And those are the questions I think are surfacing for all of us too. 
Do we actually think we are in control over our families and our own safety and well-being and comfort? Or are we entrusting ourselves over to the one who can only control those things in the first place? The quadrant in the top left is uh, exploiting. Uh, When someone uses their God-given authority and agency, but with zero exposure to risk and vulnerability. And often this means that our authority comes at the cost of other people's vulnerability and weakness. And we recently commemorated Juneteenth as a national holiday, and it's an important day to remember this dark and tragic period of our country's past where we enslaved generation upon generation of people based on the color of their skin so that we could feed our endless thirst for prosperity and greed. What a tragic example of using authority, but literally on the backs of other people. And while we may not be slave masters, there are probably a dozen ways that unintentionally we're using our authority in a way that exploits other people around the world too. And when you consider our often insatiable appetites in our country. Did you know that the food industry and the meat industry in particular is the greatest contributor to carbon emissions in the world? And it's often the poorest of the poor who suffer from the choices that we are making in the developing world. And I'm not saying that there are easy answers and simple, isolated causes, but I think it's important for us to be mindful of the ways that our choices and our agency, the authority that is given to us in our country, is perhaps coming at the expense of other people's vulnerabilities without us even recognizing it. So that's exploiting. All power and authority often coming at other people's weakness and their vulnerabilities. And the final quadrant on the top right is that of flourishing. How are we taking our God-given time, resources, and agency, and also exposing ourselves to weakness and risk and vulnerability? How are we tearing down the idols of safety and comfort and power and giving them away to those who are suffering to serve someone in our community? And that, of course, is the way of the cross. That was the way of Jesus, who had all the riches of heaven, all the power and authority, privilege, in heaven above, and he gave it all away to take on the likeness of a human being, became a poor servant, peasant. All of that given away so that we could have life, so that us in our weakness and our sickness could be healed, could be empowered. And I listened to a, a sermon by uh, Martin Luther King on the parable of the Good Samaritan, and I, I really appreciated his exposition uh, of this parable. And it tells the story, of course, perhaps Jesus' most famous parable of a man who was walking down this long, meandering road and perhaps came to a dark corner where he was mugged and he was robbed, beaten, and left for dead on the side of that road. And two religious leaders would walk past And they saw that man on the other side of the road, and they simply walked past. And perhaps the question that was raised in their minds was, if I stop to help this man, what is going to happen to me? Perhaps they were on their way to a church meeting. You know, I can't be late for this prayer meeting that I'm about to leave if I go and help this man. 
Uh, perhaps they were concerned about violating one of the ceremonial laws on purity. If I help this wounded person, that means I have to go through all these rituals to cleanse myself before I can enter the presence of God. Or perhaps they thought, well, if I stop to help this person, what if, what if I'm attacked and left for dead? If that's the case, then, well, I can't help this person anyway. I don't want to risk my own comfort to help this other person. But then another person breaks into the scene, uh, a Samaritan man, someone who is a social and religious outsider. And he comes into the scene and is walking on the other side of the road. But the question that enters his mind is different. He reverses the question. And instead, the Samaritan man asks, if I don't stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Perhaps what enters his mind is he places himself in the shoes of that man who was wounded and beaten and left for dead on the side of the road. And he's asking, if I don't do something to this person, what will happen to him? Perhaps he will die. Perhaps he has children who he's going to leave orphaned if I don't come to help this man in this moment of need. And there are so many needs all around us, both in our community and outside the walls of our church, innumerable people who are injured, physically, emotionally, spiritually. And the question that is confronting all of us in this moment now is if we don't stop to help them, what will happen to them? What will happen to them? Do we simply pass by on the other side of the road? Or are we willing to forsake comfort, security? Are we willing to expose ourselves to risk and vulnerability in the name of helping someone who might have a greater need than we do? The call to the Jericho Road is a very difficult one. And we simply do not have the resources internally to be able to live out this kind of mission in community. And I wanted to just end with this last thought. Where do we find the power to live out that kind of faith, to be one in mission? Where do we find the resources to go out and do that? Of course, when Jesus called his people to make disciples of all nations, he says that all authority has been given to me. Therefore, go and do these things in the world. And I'm so thankful that Jesus said, all authority has been given to me, uh, Jesus, not to all of us, because I often question if I have enough power and strength and fortitude to do these things that he has, in fact, called me to do. But God will provide. And when he called the early church to go into all the earth to be his witnesses, he said that he would supply his Holy Spirit, who would come down on power from on high to fill us with that explosive power that we need to help expand the presence of his kingdom in the world. God will provide. He will supply the power. And I wanted to end just by sharing uh, one last story. And uh, when I first uh, made the transition into ministry, I was working in financial services for uh, a number of years. And I, didn't, I don't think I knew it at the time, but I, I loved money. And, you know, growing up in an immigrant home, I think, I never admitted it to myself, but I craved uh, accumulating wealth, money. I wanted to make good on the sacrifice that my parents made. And so I went into finance, of course, under the guise of doing this for the kingdom of God and wanting to be generous with finances. But under, and that, that was true, but underneath was a hidden desire for financial security. 
And when we made this transition to seminary, it was really tough financially. My bank account was doing this, paying for tuition and a growing family, and all my peers were climbing the ranks in the corporate world and getting promoted and buying homes and condos. And uh, I remember sitting in our old uh, seminary apartment up in Deerfield at Trinity, and I was looking at Holly, who was pregnant at the time, and just wondering, what am I doing to our family? Uh, In a season when I should be providing more and more security Uh, Here I was making this transition, and I started to wonder if I had made the wrong choice. And I started praying, and I was asking God, um, do you you want me to go back into finance, to to go back to my last uh, career? And I shouldn't be tearing up now, because the more emotional part is going to come later. So I'm setting myself uh, in a very bad position right now. Uh, getting emotional about this. But I I prayed and I was asking God if he was in fact calling me back into finance. And right around that time, I got a call from my previous employer. I don't know if I shared this story with anyone here at Harvest. They emailed me, called me, and they said, hey, Mark, um, you know, we're looking to grow our business. It was was a small organization uh, in financial training. We're looking to grow our business. And, uh, you know, we know that you moved to Chicago to become a priest. They don't have categories for what it means to be a pastor. To be, become a priest. And uh, we actually wanted to ask if you'd be willing to open up a small office in Chicago and to lead uh, our company's mich- uh, organization there in the Midwest. And I was like, wow, the timing of this. Like God, God must be opening this door. He heard my cries for security. And what he's doing is providing for our needs. And I was telling Holly about this. This is incredible, this opportunity that just came onto our place. I wasn't even asking for it. And it's like God is just opening up this door. And I was telling Holly, like, I'm going to go away for a day. I just want to just pray on this. It seems so clear that God is providing this. But I just want some time to pray on this. And I went away for a day and was sensing that, yeah, I think God is wanting us to go back uh, to my previous job. And the anxiety that I had about our finances plummeting and eating into our savings to fund tuition, uh, you know, God is hearing our cries. And he's wanting to alleviate us from this dire situation that we're in. And I came home to our apartment, and Holly was there. And our oldest child was just an infant at that time. And I told her, this is what I think God is leading us to do. And what Holly said next really changed Uh, the course of our lives. She looked back at me and said, uh, God will provide for us. He has called us to be here. He will provide for us. And uh, God doesn't uh, speak to me audibly. I don't think I'm spiritual enough to hear from God audibly. But in those words, it was like God was speaking to her through me and confronting the idolatries that I had in my own heart, the financial security that was dictating so many of my life choices and decisions, and in many ways setting our lives up in a certain trajectory. And God was exposing those things in that moment. And I remember just weeping, and I felt this peace run through me like never before, confirming that, in fact, this call to ministry is exactly where he wants us to be. And... Uh, This road has not been an easy one. Uh, But in many ways, the peace that God provided in that moment has been sustaining us all the way through. 
And God has been showing me that there is actually uh, no thing, no such thing as uh, risk when he, in fact, is in control of everything in our lives. And I don't want to elevate uh, vocational ministry as this higher call. And when we think about the risks that we want to expose ourselves to and the vulnerabilities that we want to expose ourselves to, uh, I am not saying that that means vocational ministry is the way to do that. Uh, I'm not saying that in order to live radically for God and to want to sacrifice for him, it necessitates a change in job. Often God calls us uh, where we are in our current places of work and location, geography, to be more faithful and to consider creative ways that we can use the God-given time and energy and resources uh, to sacrifice for others and to be mindful of those who don't have uh, as much as we do. And I wanted to end just with this final question. What are some of those ways that God might be calling uh, you in this community? Uh, To think about the opportunities that God has given you and consider uh, what ways is God calling you to risk for his name. And I think uh, in my limited experience in ministry, I think the greatest moments of intimacy with God have come from moments when we have risked when we put ourselves out there, when we exposed ourselves to vulnerabilities, those are the moments when we were, in effect, uh, daring God to show up to provide for our needs. And uh, even in New York, I was sharing this with someone earlier, it's a very expensive place to live. And there was one day, though, when I got a call from the city saying that we had qualified for this uh, housing lottery where we pay like 50% of the market rate to live in a three-bedroom apartment uh, in lower Manhattan. And three-bedroom apartment in Manhattan is just completely unheard of. And we pay like 50% of the rate. And later on that same day in the afternoon, we got a call from uh, a local school, a public charter school. Schools are uh, notoriously bad in, in the city. And saying that we have spots for your kids to come and attend this public charter school where the education is great. And... Uh, God has provided, and I don't know how he will provide for all of your your needs when you go out and take a step of faith like that. Uh, But I do know that God will make a way. He will provide for our needs, just as he promised to the early church in Acts that he will be with us wherever we go until the very end of the age. So can we take some time to uh, reflect on that question? How might God be calling us to enter with him on this journey of being his witnesses uh, in the world? Let's take a moment to reflect on that and to consider what are some small ways that God might be uh, calling you to expose yourselves to uh, risk and vulnerability, to give up the illusion of uh, safety and comfort uh, in the name of wanting to invest our lives uh, for those who don't have as much as we do for those whose eternal destinies uh, are perhaps still up in the air. How is God nudging us to uh, open ourselves up to that kind of... Let's take a moment to consider that. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.